not being ready at all. I'm, I'm trying to. Did you read the book? Right. Uh. <laughs> wait, what? Which book? Okay, just humor me here. Which book? Yeah. yeah. Just pick one off the shelf. Okay. We're talking I, about it. Okay. One, one that neither of us Right. Oh, good. Okay. Then we can literally read the first paragraph and start analyzing it based on that. Wait, I would lose so many times. I know. I hate you. <laughs> yes. Um, we could do that. That would be an actually. We should. We should keep that idea. We should back pocket that one. Oh, you know what? We'll start a Patreon and have just episodes of us analyzing books based on the first paragraph. Like as a as, as a reward. bonus episodes for yeah. patrons. Because our definition of reward clearly is, is punishment. punishment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, No, we haven't. Please tell me we haven't. I mean, look, and we probably have, but also please tell me we haven't. Three and, three and, a, half. and a half minutes. Three and a half. That's not even halfway to eight. Almost. So it will be if I keep guessing here. It will be. All right. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am your host, Ethan Bartlett, and this is my guest, Michael Lilienthal. I'm Michael Lilienthal, the guest. Excellent work. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. You know, I try I, really hard every time that we do to this like recording. come up with something original. <laughs> right. And then it's that thing where instead of saying something original, you say the same thing you said like eight other times. I've never said that before. You okay? That, right. that was totally original. Uh huh. This episode first. Yep. This episode first. That's <laughs> the <laughs> sentence that you're going with. <laughs> if I backtrack on it, if I do any backpedaling, that weakens my position. So I'm sticking to well, it. Well, <laughs> you're uh, you're ripe for a career in politics. Thank you. Um, also childcare, uh, uh, yes. which are actually pretty similar. They're the same um, thing. Well, no, because in politics, the children run the asylum. Anyway, um, that's that's uh, more political than. This isn't a politics. This podcast. isn't a politics podcast. This is a podcast where we read very important books and say very important things about them yep um while doing other things while being very important while being important yes in fact do you want to uh get into those other things michael should we establish the rules we should establish in the in the script it doesn't say that oh it doesn't say does it not say anything about the rule we already said we're ignoring the script anyway um yeah, I don't think it's a, it, it. It mentions the the rules in the script, what but kind not of garbage in place. script is this? It's, it's, also, the it's script one has that's highly interpretive. It has both of our names wrong too. It does. Um, We're, yeah, they're placeholders. <laughs> <laughs> literally anyone could do this podcast, and they absolutely could. anybody. I mean, they they literally could. Yeah, um, I'm really... tempted to jo go just uh, grab my neighbors now and be like, "Hey, would you do this podcast?" For <laughs> yes. Um, oh, except we would drink the scotch. We would drink the scotch, right. and they would do the podcast, and not be allowed to mention the scotch, which is the first rule. <laughs> exactly. Segway. Thank you. Thank you for that segue. <laughs> so the name of the podcast is Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. But as you know, if you've listened to all of our other episodes, which if you have, sorry, um, <laughs> we do not mention the scotch. I'm going to introduce the scotch in a moment. Once the scotch is poured, we are no longer allowed to mention the scotch. Right. Um, what are the other rules? There is no mention of mothers. No one's mother may be mentioned in any sort of pejorative manner or any manner really unrelated to like directly applying to the text on right. the discussion. Even in Pig Latin, 
which is how I lost the last episode. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and I totally forgot that. Actually, I didn't remember that at all. You didn't I have to listen that. to the last episode. Gentle listener, we would like, actually, while we're on this topic, to apologize for the last episode. It really got away from oh, us. Oh, it really did. We thought we were doing pretty well, I think. During it, I yeah. remember thinking that yeah. during it. I remember thinking this is like the best episode ever. But also, it was, it was all right. I'm I'm sure it was. There was there was some solid analysis in there, but we got but, so far afield. And also, like I don't remember most of the last episode. Yeah. Like the episode before that. That one, yeah. That one I remember most of, but the last episode, something about that drinking for two weeks in a row, that just two weeks straight, just hammered me. You know what though? Like that's that that whiskey that we drank. Um, it was a bourbon, higher yeah. in sugar content, yep. so much sweeter, it's really snuck up on us. Yeah, that's what that's exactly um, what happened. It was really easy to drink. Congratulations to um Great Northern Distillery. Great Northern Distillery. Oh man, it was so good. It was so good. It was so very good. good. So you it know what? Very, uh... I was thinking about this. Maybe we should have a PSA very seriously at the beginning of each of our episodes. Just saying, drink responsibly. Yes, for ourselves, right? <laughs> for ourselves. So just... And listeners, you take that advice, too. Yes, please do. <laughs> um, and also, while we're on this note, we want to apologize to our wives. Yes! Who, as anyone who's listened to any of this podcast ever or knows us should already know this, but they are literally, like, Catholic saints. Basically. Um, just for being Pray married to, to them. us. Um, okay, we're gonna we're going to... We're going to retreat from this joke. Rely uh, on their merits. Immediately. <laughs> before we just start writing the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. Anyway. <laughs> um, you're welcome for that joke, three people. <laughs> uh, so, uh, rule number no one. Mothers. No mentioning the scotch. Yep. Rule number two, no mothers. Rule number three are the specific rules for each of us. Correct. Michael must not say the word vampire right. or any of its derivatives. Right. Um, like vampiric vampirism. Yes, unless it is in a direct quote from the book. Correct. Uh, what is what is my specific rule? Your specific rule, Ethan, is that you are not allowed to say the phrase first paragraph. Yes. Um, so we've established the rules. Now, what happens if either of us violates any of the rules? Then there is a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt as prescribed by the present not loser. Yes, because there are no winners, there are no winners. because this is literature. Right, um, nobody wins. Between Michael and me, we have three English degrees, so we are authorities on this matter, if on nothing else. Right. Uh, good. Cool. Cool. So, now, yeah, I feel like you're shy with the scotch this time. I don't know. I'm... I feel like you're, you're like, putting me off, like you're, like you're a girl on prom night. I don't know what and, to like, expect. And, like, you've dialed yourself up. I have. Um, and now also... I'm just sitting here. Oh, and... good. I thought I forgot the glasses again. Again, though, they're didn't. just actually behind me. They are. So, um, here's your glass. Oh, thank you. And here is the scotch. Ooh. This is. It's in a very beautiful, uh, sort of Ooh. cardboard box with a with a window cut out, so you yeah. can touch the actual bottle within. I like that. It's um, what we have very this bright. time. Yeah, it's very, it's sort of a nice light amber in color. Uh-huh. What we have this time is Long Row Peated Campbelltown Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. I love that um, name. Right? It's just very, it's very good. It's I very really, nice white and gold. kind of drawn to that of, box. It's, it's, it's very blank. And yeah, it's very uh, minimalist. Inviting. Minimalist, yeah. Minimalist, but inviting. You're right. That, that white and gold combination. So, 
Uh, the this scotch comes from J and A Mitchell, uh, which is Scotland's oldest distilling family, according to their own testimony. Mm. Um, they opened their distillery in 1828 on the site of previous illicit distillery of Archibald Mitchell. What does that mean? That sounds like a lot of unreliable narration happening <laughs> in there. Holy cats. Um, this distillery is unique amongst Scotland's distilleries in that all parts of the production process, from traditional floor malting to bottling, are carried out in the one location. Oh. It's the only distillery in Scotland to produce three different single malts, Springbank, oh. Springbank, Longrow, and Hazelburn. Ah. All of which, they, they oh. seem to have this theme. Did you do, oh, I don't know if you did that on purpose, but maybe I'll talk about it when we review the sketch. Go on. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was going to say they have this clear theme of putting, like, naming their things with R's that are hard to enunciate oh, sure. into a microphone. So the the specific, so that's, that's about the brewery. The specific Longrow peated Campbelltown malt was first distilled in 1973. It's a double distilled, huh. heavily peated single malt produced at Springbank Distillery in Campbelltown. The malt is peat dried for up to 48 hours to give the whiskey a unique Campbelltown style smoky character. <laughs> Less than 100 casks of Long Row are filled each year, uh, making this whiskey something of a hidden gem worth seeking out. Now that's the bottle talking through me, using me as a medium. So, you know, we will, Michael and I will hold ourselves the judge of that even though we have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about scotch really but right we're making it all up we're basically like this scotch may be an invention of of our minds right <laughs> um <sighs> no i i have to take that back because we are not that good at imagining no that's why we read other people's imaginations exactly and drink <laughs> other people's scotch other than our own right um, you just steal it from neighbors and things yeah and also, our own scotch probably kills people. We don't know because we don't drink it. Right, we don't. We just make it in our bathtub. Yep, yep, and with uh... whatever we find <laughs> in the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> All right, opening the long row, and I'm about to pour the pour the scotch. And as you know, gentle listener, once I pour the scotch and once we clink the glasses, we are no longer allowed to mention the scotch, which is always just annoying on that first sip right that's that's, that's just... really when you really want to start talking about it but you and that's can't. immediately when we're not allowed to, yep which sounds so is very literary so again honest, really. you know we chose to do this podcast right we elected to do this podcast and we wanted to do it once again emphasizing our theme that rewards for us are punishment our punishment <laughs> that seems like a running theme that we yeah. will come back to forever. probably forever yeah all right are you ready yes Brost. So, this month's book, as chosen by Michael last month, mm -hmm. is And the Mountains Echoed by Khaled Hosseini, mm -hmm. um, who Michael and I, I believe both had previously encountered yep. in The Kite Runner. Yes, and I think um, in not the same session, but the same class in college, we were assigned to read The Kite Runner. Yes, yes. Um, and... Uh, should we talk about that just a little bit, just brief overview of, of um, our uh, experience experience with Kite Runner? Yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Well, I don't know if I don't know if this is the angle you were going to take, but I had been Whatever. thinking about my my experience with Kite Runner, and I super did not like Kite Runner mm -hmm. at all. Um, now that partly may have been 
to do with this class and the teacher <laughs> of this class. Um, but also, like, you know, even if I'm assigned a book by a teacher I don't like, like, if I like the book, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I, I can sort of think of the two independently of each other. There were several books in that very class that I did really like. Oh, yeah. Um, the, now, and I, I say this, it's been at least seven years, I would say, since I read Kite Runner, so I can't say I could give, like, a super good analysis, criticism of it. Um, what I remember thinking overall is that Kite Runner had a lot of stuff in it that was very clearly, like, very calculated to be sort of potboiler bestseller material. Yeah. Um, that it just was very, almost, to me it read cynically, just like, I'm gonna put this in because I know it will either create controversy or, like, tug at people's heartstrings or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, um, and that it almost read like, like a cookie cutter version of, of doing that without the, the depth or the authority required to sort of, uh, um, back that up. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Shakespeare did the same thing. I I will fully admit, um, you know, Shakespeare's one of my favorite authors, but all of his plays were straight up pot boilers. Like they were in a lot of ways, some of his most famous plays, um, Romeo and Juliet, obviously, right. even Just even King Young Lear, Love and to some extent, are basically soap operas. There. Yeah, they're basically soap operas. Um, and they, you know, they, Shakespeare did that because he knew that that it would it would uh, put butts in the seats. It would sell it would sell copies, as it were. Um, right. right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So, you know, that that in and of itself is not. Um, uh inherently something that will make me dismiss a book however uh what shakespeare has is he has you know great craft great writing um great sort of authoritative grounding in human nature Mm -hmm. um and you need all of that stuff in my book to back up a sort of a cynically done um pot boiler in order to make it worth reading and i felt that kite runner only had one of those things and it had the worst one right so that was generally how i felt about kite runner i i'm kind of along the same lines there i i i I only read it once but i analyzed it after reading it and i liked it a little bit more after analyzing it but not a whole lot more it's it's one of those books where i'm happy to have read it but i don't need to read it again um and my analysis of it is along the same lines of yours uh that uh it it just it contrives itself into something specifically designed to get you to feel things and talk about it. Yeah. That's what it, it was trying to do that too hard. And the, the contrivance of it is what really got to me. Yeah. Um, that it was it, kind of far out there. Uh, there, there's too many coincidences in the book. I think. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's, that just speaks to the contrived nature of the narrative in general. Yeah. Um, so that, that was my problem with it. Um, but and I I felt like part of part of my disappointment with it too was that it didn't need to do all that. Oh, really? Didn't um you know the just even the the stuff like the the scenes of kite running the yeah where the title comes from um you know a lot of the the sort of cultural background has been done very little in in you know English language novels mm-hmm. um you know there's a lot of stuff that that kite runner had going for it. Um, that it, if, it had a niche. Yeah, 
And not only that, but it, it had some truly interesting and compelling like story elements yes. and characters. And I felt like if the if the author at the time had had been had just sort of I wanted him to relax. I wanted him to not yeah. be so um manipulative of his audience and of his material and mm-hmm. I wanted him to just sort of sit back and tell a clean, well, simple story and have the confidence to do that. I think this might come out in the analysis of this book mm-hmm. um, that he is overly concerned to make the story what he wants it to be, what yeah. presenting what he wants right. it to present. And that's definitely an old conflict um, within authors, great authors to, you know, nothing authors and everything in between. Um, is the fact that a story can, uh, when you when you allegorize it or when you make it sort of a, a parable, um, it can have this great power, but that's a different sort of power than the like what the natural strength of a novel is. Mm-hmm. Um, a novel lives much more in ambiguity. Um, it's much more powerful at sort of embodying tension and embodying opposites and letting them sort of coexist um even if that's if, even if it's uncomfortable um that's where a novel strength lies as opposed to sort of a parable or an allegory which is shaped towards a very specific end um and when you take something that's supposed to be a novel and you shape it overly like you're talking about mm-hmm. um i think it becomes very uncomfortable and in the hands of like the very best novelists it can work but I think it almost works in spite of itself and not because of them. Yeah. Doing that. Yeah. So, um, but with uh, just a little bit more on, on that, I was intrigued enough by the writer's style mm-hmm. in kite runner that when a thousand splendid suns came out, I wanted to read that. Sure. And so I did and really enjoyed a thousand splendid okay. suns. Uh, I absolutely loved it, and so with that, I really wanted to read And the Mountains Echoed as well. Um, I remember, I do remember being just taken enough with Kite Runner uh, that I felt like if you read uh, Thousand Splendid Sons and liked it, I was willing to give it a shot. Sure. I haven't read A Thousand Splendid Sons, so um, there's that, but like, I, I do remember, you know, it wasn't... Uh, like I took this author and said no, nothing ever again by him. Right. You know, it wasn't uh, Dan Brown syndrome. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, not to uh, dangle rabbit trails in front of us. That right. That uh, yeah. Anyway. But um, so uh, leading then into discussion of this book, um, I, I'm gonna rank the three books, his three books, really quickly. Mm-hmm. At the bottom is Kite Runner. Mm-hmm. Kite Runner is, is okay, but he's got two other books. You can read those. You don't have to read Kite Runner. If you haven't read anything by Khaled Hosseini, don't read Kite Runner. Right. Um, read one of the others. Uh, I'm going to put uh, And the Mountains Echoed second okay. and uh, A Thousand Splendid Sons at the top. And maybe that'll come out a little bit more as we talk about this book itself. A Thousand Splendid Sons is really solid in my eyes. Um, okay. Absolutely pure through and through. Uh, a thousand uh, and the mountains echoed. I did enjoy a great deal, but there are a couple things that just knocked it down a peg from a thousand splendid suns for me. Yeah, I think I'm actually right there with you. Um, obviously, again, I haven't read a thousand splendid suns. Sure. Now, this is all making me feel like I do really want to still, and again, however that goes. Um, whatever adverb you want to put on there. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I agree. There's a lot in this book that I liked, and I did like it, 
you know, approximately 10,000 times better than I liked Kite Runner. Yes. Um, but there were still some problems. That, then there are different problems than the Absolutely. ones I mentioned with Kite Runner. Um, there are still some problems that I have with it that um, I, I'm going to reserve my final judgment on it um, as far as recommend, don't recommend until mm-hmm. the end of the episode. But um, definitely, probably more or less with you on, on assessments, I'm going to guess. That said, oh, I was actually this is a digression, but did we did we do all of our recommend don't recommend stuff at the end of the last episode? Yes, we did. Okay, we did. We did. Yep. Even even the um the the pairing. Yes, we did. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. We we really digressed in the midst of doing it, but we I did it. Bet we did. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because I truly thought we didn't. Like I truly thought we maybe only did um the reading book this. or reading what? Maybe I was wrong. What? No, nope, you're right. Okay. Hmm. You're right. Uh, you didn't say it a whole word. Uh, I just I put that one up to the panel of judges ooh. in my mind, and and they they they, uh, they had to... reluctantly agreed that, that to let you off the hook. This oh, time. thank you, thank you, gracious yeah. mind judges of Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> they have now all bowed in your direction, and <laughs> this is getting very troubling very quickly. Uh. Uh, I, my my aim is to create a, a civil war in your mind between you and the judges. Oh, don't worry, it's a constant civil war. <laughs> Good. Actually, what I tell people is that really I'm a very simple person, and all you need to understand me is to understand that somewhere in the back room of a pub in my brain, there is a constant bull session going between Martin Luther, Mark Twain, and Marshall McLuhan. Yes. Like that's all you need to to know, and then you just you, you got me. All right. So podcast over. I was, was going to say we're done here. <laughs> uh, we've reached the apotheosis. And, uh, oh, good. I will now uh, transcend and form into a, a spiritual being. Yes. No, I couldn't do that because I wouldn't be able to do this podcast correctly. Then. Correct. You would not be able to do this podcast correctly without a body. <laughs> yep. So, uh, can I give you my dime version analysis of this book? Absolutely, and I also have a dime version analysis. Okay. So that like maybe it's not. I don't know which. I don't know if dime, dime version is. analysis is a phrase. I know. But... I know. So so it is a dime version. It is I'm a saying dime. that now. It's um, it's, it's also a real it, phrase. It now. reminds me of like a dime novel, like the old That's you know, kind of what I'm from a hundred years ago. Like so, I expect I fully expect in your analysis, like a cowboy to just <laughs> pop up and get into a shootout with like a, an Italian mobster or something. Yeah, that's that's totally part of this. That's, okay, good. Yeah, I'm really excited for. Absolutely. Okay, go ahead. Um, no, okay, so my analysis of this book is that this is Khaled Hosseini's literary self-criticism. Huh. This book is his literary self-criticism. Um, and what I mean by that, you can trace through this book um, a kind of a trio thread of characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are characters, any character who writes something yeah. gets some significant play. Mm-hmm. Uh, any character who tells a story mm-hmm. gets some significant play, and any character who has any dealings in the medical field mm-hmm. gets some significant play. Sure. And Khaled yeah. Hosseini sure. is a doctor turned uh, writer, and oh, okay. keep track too of how much of the book takes place in San Francisco, where Khaled Hosseini lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, there's there's a lot of that very personal stuff. 
Um, sure, and with... some of that, you know, at a basic level, that could be just write what you know. Oh, he yeah, sure. He knows San sure. Francisco, he knows the medical field, so he's sure. going to go there. And that's that's part of it. That's kind of the foot in the door of it. But then right. when you take that and connect how much of the story, how much of the book deals with story and what story yes, is. Yes, um, Almost every page. Every I page. I probably could have written the phrase storytelling. Or... Yeah story yep. or you know and I, then, I did write a list of themes in my book you'll okay. be very proud of me this time yes for writing and i'm so in happy book. and I'm like so happy. the idea of story what did i even put uh stories as power was what i put there but okay like i could have said 17 other things about story connected with that story is power um it, i i saw maybe a little bit more of a nuanced version of that and you may uh -huh. have had some of that in mind too but story is both an escape from Mm -hmm. And an address to yes. real life. Yes. Uh, both at the same time. Right. Uh, and uh, in, in that, too, then you get the theme of echoes. Right. And the mountains echo. Right, that, right, right. Uh, and story itself is an echo of life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really the key of Khaled Hosseini's literary self-criticism, is the, okay. the phrase that I'm holding on to. Um, so it's that, it's that tension between... He's telling the story as an escape, but also as a as a reflection or an echo. Right, and he's trying to figure out how to do that perfectly, which leads to the analysis of Kite Runner uh -huh. and how it was so contrived, and he's trying to get this story perfect and contriving it and controlling every detail to get it perfect. Uh... And he sees, I think, writing this book is a result of partially seeing how that didn't work sure. in Kite Runner. Uh, and I'm imagining this. There, There is a, a, a writer in this book who, um, a character, uh, Roshi, mm -hmm. the little girl who had her head axed open by her uncle. Right. Um, speaking of which, just really briefly, spoilers! <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. We, we, wait, I can never remember. Are we supposed to say spoiler alert, or did we say spoiler alert we, one time in we, one episode? That's and right, that we did say spoiler forever. alert, but we didn't give them a chance to read that's the That's true, book. okay. So we've given you now, gentle listener, a nice introduction to this book, like, Probably, if this book had a scholarly introduction, we have given away less of the plot than that scholarly introduction would True. would give away. Also, we've probably been much less intelligent than any actual literary scholar <laughs> would be. So I guess, you know, you, you get what you pay for. But um, we've given you a nice little introduction now uh, to in order to listen to the rest of the podcast, which you're this far in. Like, why wouldn't you listen to the rest? Right. Pause your podcast tape player. No. Um and go go listen to or go read the the rest of this book or read this book read this book and then listen to the rest of this podcast by pressing play on your podcast tape player which yeah. is how podcasts play it's right. not for the record uh <laughs> with michael's negativity in mind ready pause I said pause and then that interrupted the pause. You did. And now I'm interrupting. You're the interrupting pause. the pause. Okay. Just you... Let them pause. You let them pause. I'm trying. <clears throat> that that was supposed to be the pause. Wait, that was supposed to be the pause. You didn't say it. But this is did. like when my brother and I, like when we were younger and like we were awake before my mother and my dad would come out and be like, be very quiet. Your mom's, your mother's sleeping. <laughs> but he would say it way louder than we were being. <laughs> so we'd be like, dad, you're being loud now. And he'd be like, no, you're being loud. <laughs> and it would turn into a whole thing. Yeah, it was a whole thing. So point Here. being, pause now. And we're back. And we're back. 
Um, I hope the the spool on your podcast no. cassette tape is running properly. Um, but so you mad. Know, keep a pen handy just in case. So mad. I just decided to ignore your negativity and to rise above it. Oh. Um, and oh. if people want to listen, you think to their... you're better than me? Yeah, for sure. P- people want to listen to their podcasts on cassette tape. I think we should let them, and I think uh, you should stop judging. I'm not judging. I'm you just are denying judging. the fact that there there's nobody nobody listening on a tape if you are listening to this podcast on a tape recorder please write us a letter yes please do that i am fully in support of this um yeah also good call on the fact that they would write us a letter right (laughs) but i am fully in support of this and here's why all i need is for one contrarian (laughs) to be doing that uh, uh and to write to us and I know it's a little bit of a stretch, but all I need is one. There are like 80 billion people in the world or something. That's not right. That's <laughs> not right at all. Uh, you're right. It's more like 200 billion <laughs> people in the world. All I need out of that 250 billion person <laughs> contingent is one 50 billion person. people were born in the last three seconds. <laughs> yeah, I have like a ticker on my computer yeah. that keeps track of it and everything. Um, all I need is for one person out of that 400 billion oh my gosh. to write to us. This goes on much longer. We're going to have a real problem. We are. We're, people are going to just start materializing in this room. Yeah. Like, we're out of space, guys. Sorry, uh, we're in your podcast now. Uh, um, yes. Good. Okay. Well, anyway. Okay. I was talking about Roshi. Yes. Uh, whose uncle split her head open, but she survived. Right. Uh, and we get a brief description of her brains. Right. Um, but <laughs> uh, the point I was making is about her as authoress, because uh, there's a time jump after you meet her as a little girl. Yes. Uh, several years later after she has written a book of her experiences. Yes. Um, and a really interesting part of that, there, there are several interesting parts. There There's a, a whole scene parts, yeah. in the bookstore yeah. when this man who was supposed to have been her benefactor but then got distracted by his Western life and his home theater that he was building so that mm-hmm. he couldn't actually help her and di- or just decided not to, decided to ignore her. And then she comes out with this book. And understandably, he gets nervous when he sees that she's written this book of her experiences thinking that it's going to defame him. Right. And so he's going to kind of apologize to her with a book, getting her autograph and and, um, going to apologize. Now, there are so many interesting details about that scene alone. Yes. Um, The first one being he talks to a woman in the line. Mm-hmm. And this woman turns around and says, this book is so good. I'm going to get my book club to read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can picture that person <laughs> uh, who's saying that. Um, this, I think we've oh, all met that person. It's moved me. Uh, you know, she, right. she's gushing about this book. Uh, and the irony there is that she's this Western woman, has mm-hmm. no relation to the experiences of this poor girl in Afghanistan whose uncle killed her whole family with an axe and tried to kill her mm-hmm. and whose brother rushed into a hot, fiery stove so that he wouldn't get killed by the uncle and instead would die by burning. Okay, there, there's some serious trauma there that this woman has no relation to. She's here in this right. line smiling about it right. and saying, this book is amazing. Right. Uh, so that's the first thing, okay? Right. And that's leading into this literary self-criticism. Uh, the next thing is, uh, is it Idris? Is that his name? Uh, that sounds right. The character who goes into the into the line, I think it's Idris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he he goes up uh, and he's not going to ask her for an autograph. 
Instead, he just wants to apologize. Right. He doesn't get a chance to, though, because the store clerk there is kind of moving people through the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he, like, she just writes something down in the book and hands it to him, and he moves off without getting a chance to talk to her. And he's wondering, did she even recognize me, any of that? Mm. Um, then he opens the book and sees she did recognize him. She did know who it was. She did not off, uh, autograph the book. Mm -hmm. You notice she did not write her name in it. Instead, mm. she wrote, don't worry, you're not in it. Right. Um, and that is just amazing. Yeah, yeah. That was an amazing scene because uh, he didn't get a chance to ask for her forgiveness. She kind of gave it to him. The way she gave it to him was by editing the story, uh -huh. by cutting him out of it. Right. By changing what was reality, what was life, into this echo of the story. Right. And then she did not put her name on it because she has cut ties with him there. Right. Um, ugh, ugh, fascinating. Right. Um, so this is connected with my idea of this book as Carlo Rossini's literary self-criticism because he has probably seen so many of that woman in the line. Right. Uh, who are like, oh, this book changed my life. It's so interesting. And he's thinking, it changed your life how? You right. went from being this Western American middle class person to being this Western American middle class person. Right. How did it change you? Right. It, it, it's not actually changing him. And so he's seeing that it the, the reality of what he's trying to communicate is not being communicated. Right. It's only an echo right. that's being communicated. Right. Um... And so that's that's where he's seeing this 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 tension, and he's trying to figure out how can a story be more than an echo of the reality. Right. Uh, there's one passage I want to point out. Aside from that scene, uh, it's near the end of the book. It's on page 396 in mine, where uh, Perry gets a, a call from Perry. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> the, the two Perrys are on the phone. Uh, and, uh, she, she, uh, she says, I knew at the moment I picked up the receiver and she spoke my father's name into my ear and asked whether this was his residence she had reached. And I said, yes, who is this? And she said, I am his sister. My heart kicked violently. I fumbled for a chair to drop into everything around me suddenly pin drop quiet. It was a shock. Yes. The sort of third act theatrical thing that rarely happens to people in real life. Right. And that... I feel like is a commentary on Khaled Hosseini's own writing because mm -hmm. that's that is precisely my criticism of Kite Runner. Right. Is that you've got this third act thing that does not happen in real life and it's so out there that it just takes you right out yeah. of yeah, the yeah, book. Yeah. And so here he's saying that explicitly and this is coming in the third act of the book. Right. <laughs> Literally. Very, very meta. Very uh, so, meta, so yeah. meta right there. So that's where I'm seeing this book as his literary self-criticism. Sure. And this, so that's your uh, dime novel take. My on... my my dime version analysis. Very good, very <laughs> good. Um, I'll pay you your dime later. Thank you. If you pay me mine, I will. Okay, good. If it's good. Um. Okay. Well, here's so here is mine, and this is pretty much whatever phrase we've coined here. Like the thing you were thinking is pretty much the thing I was thinking. I think. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, you Follow can, that you can take that sentence to the bank and cash it in for more than a dime. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Um, Nobody does. <laughs> Except maybe Martin Luther and Mark Twain in the back there. No. Funny story. This dime novel analysis is all about Marshall McLuhan. Oh! The one I didn't mention. Yes. All right. Yeah, you fail. I guess. Um, I think you lose. I think that's a loss. 
No, I don't think it is. No, it isn't. It's not I, one of those rules. I was I was trying to just put it out there and hope that like by saying it with such authority that you would just that I would like, buy give into in it. it. Yeah, yeah, like that you just wouldn't think about it and just be like, oh yeah, you're of course it is. That's How sort of, gullible do you think I am? Uh, you don't want me to answer that, Ugh. or do you? I I um, don't know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh. Now this this uh this does dovetail I think fairly nicely from your analysis and especially from the part of your analysis talking about um uh the girl whose head got chopped open Roshi um, Roshi thank you uh and 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 specifically with her editing the the book editing the book to put him back in the book in order to tell him that he's out of the book Yeah right um and that's that's everything that I was thinking about this this novel partly influenced by Marshall McLuhan, um, but also partly influenced by a novel I read in grad school called Castle Rack Rent. Um, so this is the part of the show where I go and um, take a, an 18th century Irish novel and tie it into this 21st century uh, novel by, an, I believe, an Afghani author. Um, Afghani-American. Yeah. Uh, anyway, okay. So... Castle Rackrent is this it's a fairly short novel. It was written in eighteenth century in the eighteenth century uh by an Irish woman who um had some connections with English society, enough to, to sort of get a novel published. And so this novel is almost a sort of a shaggy dog story narrated by this old Irish uh uh um uh servant of a, an English estate um, he's sort of the head servant of this English estate in Ireland. And for context here, you know, this was after several hundred years of the English um, colonizing Ireland, often by force. Um, you know, this was within uh, nah, around a hundred years of Oliver Cromwell literally wiping the town of Gerwida off the face of the earth, right? So as a native Irish woman, uh, the, the novelist had some cause to be hostile to England. Okay, so... However, this 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 uh, Irish Irish head uh, um, servant is telling an English person in this novel that you know the the story of this particular estate. And by the end of the story, what has happened is all the English heirs to the estate have died, and essentially through a sort of very complex, um, almost incomprehensible train of like like primogeniture and um, inheritance and and um, you know, legal stuff and so forth. Um, this head servant's son has ended up inheriting the estate, and so the head servant tells it as a tragedy, and he goes at great lengths to lament the the untimely demise of the English son, um, the English heir, and uh, you know the 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 fact that like this this head servant's own son has had to take over the estate. Um, and I really hope I'm remembering this accurately because I am doing this off the top of my head. Like, sure. I haven't read this novel in several years and I didn't bother, like, looking up a Wikipedia summary. But as I remember, that's that's roughly the gist of this novel, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, the thing about this novel is that it's it's a novel, uh, which is, which is uh, again, almost a tautology. But, um, which is almost a tautology. Exactly. Uh, but a novel is a form of uh, storytelling, obviously, but it's it's a very specific form. Storytelling arose in an oral society, and here's your Marshall McLuhan for the day. So, you know, an oral oral storytelling and written storytelling are very different. 
in the sense that oral storytelling can change. Every time you tell a story, every time mm -hmm. you tell a joke, for example, you change it slightly. And you change, you know, a joke is a really good example because it's like one of the, the most basic oral storytelling um, elements. And it's also it still, still exists very prevalent. as an oral, primarily oral exactly. storytelling. Like it almost, you see jokes in plenty of novels, but it's almost odd when you do. And it's yeah. always for a very specific reason. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, you alter a joke slightly based on like what your audience needs explained to them, mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or what they'll be familiar with or what references they'll get or won't get, you know, you'll, you'll alter or any, any, really any story that you tell, um, you know, our, our, uh, uh, communication on this podcast changes based on the fact that we chose to assume that everyone listening has read the novel. Yep. And I mean, we did that for a very practical reason being that we needed this, these recording sessions to go two hours rather than like 17 hours. Yep. Um, but it does change like what we say and, and, and how long we take to say it. Um, much as the gentle listener will probably doubt that last clause of, of my sentence. Okay. <laughs> so a novel, on the other hand, is inherently a frozen form of communication, mm -hmm. right? You, you write something down, it gets published, it goes out. Um, you know, there are certain very perfectionistic authors who like issue revised versions of their novels, but sure. that's almost more confusing because now two different versions of the novel exist. And like when it's in front of you in black and white, they both seem authoritative. Like yep. there's an authority that, that just the printing of words on paper lends it. Right. So a novel is, is conceived as something that doesn't change that once it's done and sent to the printers and it's once it's permanent. printed and distributed, that's the form of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the thing about Castle Rackrent, right, is that this the, you always have to keep in mind that the text is being told by an Irish servant to an English aristocrat. Um, and that's why the Irish servant tells it as a tragedy. If he was telling it to, like, his mates in the servants' hall, it would be a comedy. It would be, ha, 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 my son inherited this estate that we've all been servants on for generations. You know, it's it's a much different story when, you're, when your audience is all Irish and all sort of on the same page as opposed to someone that culturally you're supposed to be subservient to. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this tension between oral storytelling and written storytelling, even though the one basically evolved out of the other, right? And that tension is all throughout this book. Mm -hmm. um, now there's some very obvious uh, sort of sort of places where you can pick this up, um, you know, it, right right in the in the very first chapter, um, you you have literally this oral story that that is clearly yeah. a story um, that you know the the teller knows orally, but here it is written down, um, and in the flashback of of that character who's telling the story, in the, or not the flashback, but the the chronologically yeah. earlier stuff that comes later in the book um which is know, very confusing is very the chronology confusing. of the book is all over the place right which i enjoy but yeah it's it no it's a very non-linear sort of thing it's cool so if now i forgot what i was saying okay so that you have that you have that almost just like it's almost like hosini took a highlighter to it when um the the one young woman uh buys a notebook for the young man yes. who tells the stories yes. and that's going to be his present um and that's almost like this this very potent symbol for the transition from this this sort of desert 
culture that mm-hmm. that um, dominates the first half of the book to this Western, you know, European American culture that dominates the, the second, second half. half. Yeah. So that's why I wrote down specifically stories as power. Um, because, you know, and that's what made me think of Castle Rackrent. So, like, if I were assigning this book in a college class, Castle Rackrent would be, like, the the extra credit, you know, read mm-hmm. this and write a one-page paper connecting the two. Um, and it's, uh, Rackrent is, like, a 50-page novel. It would be oh, pretty wow. easy to do easy. in a, you know, in a day or in an hour, maybe. So, yeah. So, that's, that's that was my thing. So, you know, Castle Rackrent is a story in which, on the surface, you have a subservient Irish servant um, telling a tragic story to an English lord or aristocrat. But what's really going on is this servant, who is one of the more disempowered people in the that, that culture at that time, is exerting a form of power mm-hmm. over this person who, on the surface, is much more powerful than he is. Mm-hmm. Um and you know that's that's uh, there are numerous examples I could I could name in this book of that, um, and even just just to uh, do my do my uh, you know English 101 I only read the opening chapter thing. That's what the the father who is as you find out later is about to essentially sell his daughter to mm-hmm. this other couple. That's what he's doing by telling this story. The story becomes an escape. It has, you know, gin and, and fantastical mm-hmm. creatures and, and places in it. And, and it's also an echo of precisely what's going on. What's going on, yes. Yeah. But it's him coming from an extremely powerless position, and even just if it's temporarily or or uh, in almost a hopeless way, he's exerting a sort of power over the situation that he wouldn't have without the story. Can I um, just... And that's that's just to connect that. That's what Roshi does too, right? Yeah, is, is coming she, from this very powerless place, extremely powerless place. And her book is what her telling her story is what makes her a more powerful person. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, when when um when uh the the doctor the young doctor meets Roshi, on the surface he is very powerful and she is powerless, and that's where all of his guilt comes from. Um, eh. but by the end of that sort of arc. The, it's inverted. It's inverted because of the power of 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 the, the storytelling. Yeah, the storytelling. Um, and then yeah, even so, there, there's almost again that that highlighting or that that pushback, um, that echo of like an oral storytelling culture where she goes ahead and sort of furthers her power, but also manages to take this linear sort of print culture mm-hmm. thing, this book, and right into it an echo of an oral culture where she gets to edit the story and she tells him his personal version of the story even though that version is sort of Uh emptied out in the sense that what she's telling him is you're not in this story right oh fascinating uh i i just got a kick of something really interesting based on your analysis just now Mm -hmm. um and i will be paying you your dime (laughs) so excellent you earned it i can now buy bread for my for my for your family yes Yes. uh so with this opening chapter being a story being told the impression of the father who's telling this story is overall positive Mm -hmm. because he's telling a story to his son and it's it's precious it's sweet Mm -hmm. uh and it's really really nice Mm -hmm. you know it's it's kind of idyllic you know it's it's kind of a tragic story but still you know he's telling this story to his son and it's it's nice Mm -hmm. Chapter 2 begins with the sentence, Father had never before hit Abdullah. 
Oh, uh, yeah. And like, boom! Uh, and, like, it, it switches the narrative, too. Yep. The narrative had been completely the story. There's there's no, he said this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told a story this way. It's it's all the story in chapter one. And then chapter two, you're immediately yanked out of that story, mm-hmm. and your perspective on father changes in an instant. Mm-hmm. Father had never before hit Abdullah, and so then there's hitting coming. There, uh, from the oral into something in action, mm-hmm. something very physical happening all of a sudden. And that uh, kind of reversal of your perspectives on characters mm-hmm. continues throughout the book. With that chapter with Idris, sure. yeah. you know, he starts out and he's a hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all from his perspective, too, which is that power of of story. It's it's his story, sure. uh, comparing him to his brother Timor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Timor is a, a womanizer, a cheater, a selfish, uh, self-glorifying, all that stuff. Uh, But Idris is selfless and wants to work for himself and get things figured out. Anyway, um, and then by the end of that chapter, it's completely reversed. And you're even tempted by the reversal of Idris, who has gone from this hero to this despicable person, Mm -hmm. uh, to see a reversal also in his brother Timor. Right, which (laughs) is in the text there already. You know, everyone in their community sort of in the States thinks of Timor as this great person because he ostentatiously does all of these wonderful things. Yeah, he's helpful and and giving, and Idris kind of resents a lot of that. Because he's so ostentatious about it. Yeah. Like, Idris sees right through it. Right. Um, But then you you have that, that it's that old uh, sort of question of of deontology, right? Does Mm -hmm. um, Does the action that is taken, does that make uh his uh Idris's brother whose name you just Timor. said I forgot. Yeah, does that make Timor uh um a good person no matter what his intentions were or you know is it devalued because he does it ostentatiously. Right. Um which is to me that that specific little set of uh paradoxes really had an echo actually of Shakespeare. There's a very King Learish sure. element to it, the whole idea that uh, Goneril and and uh, Regan, King Lear's two, um, two two of King Lear's daughters, like do ostentatiously do great credit to King Lear, and they they uh, you know sort of sort of scratch all of his all of his itches, as it were, um, and they do it while talking about the fact that they're doing it. Yep. Whereas Cordelia, of course, uh, is completely selfless. Is completely selfless to the point that she can't even bring herself to. Uh, you know, sort of toot her own horn the way that Goneril and Regan do, do, and of course, because she can't do that, no one sees that she's that she's doing the good thing. Right. Um, but then, in, in, you know, taking taking it into this this book, it's almost as though our Cordelia analog too is just a bad person, just in a different way, almost. Yeah. Um, just yeah, from a different perspective, which yeah. like so after chapter two, you're kind of set up to see Abdullah as the main character. Right, right, which is perhaps to me the most jarring thing in uh the book, is just who is the main character? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Who is this book about? I think you can take each chapter alone as a short story or even a short novel. And Um, in fact, that that almost is my biggest problem with this book. Like, it's part of the reason that that I, you know, don't think of it as, as highly as I might. Um, And that's along the same lines for me, too. Um, I think... This is detracting a little bit from the point I was going to make, but it's it's still a good point that it it 
it has such a good idea. Yeah. This book that it loses track of the arc yeah. for the story. Uh, it, it's it's one of those things that's like, was this a novel or was this just a bunch of short stories with similar themes? Yeah. And the author didn't quite have no the time together. Or or alternatively, did he n- sort of need them to exist? as a novel because he didn't have the the power to make them stand on their own yeah. fully sure sure know, that 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 was the question i ended up sure because this, this could if, if this were billed as an anthology of mm-hmm. short stories it would be i, I think that that would have made it brilliant um, i think it would have been good but he would have had to write it somewhat differently a little bit especially the end because uh-huh. i think uh-huh. that fact that it loses track of the story arc leads to a very floundering end. Yeah. It the end goes on for thirty plus pages. Yeah. And it, it tries been... it really tries to pull it back around yep. and make it a full circle. And in some ways it succeeds. But in some, but it's only also, on a surface level, I would say. I, I was engrossed in just about every part of this book except the last thirty pages. Uh-huh. And I was just uh-huh. waiting for it to be done. Um and that's I think because it lost track of the story arc uh-huh. somewhere in there. Uh, but the the idea that you've got this main character of Abdullah and you're you're rooting for him. That's what you do with right. main characters. Right. You root for him. Um, and then you get to chapter three, and all of a sudden the perspective changes, and you're, we're talking about Parwana, right. Abdullah's stepmother, uh, right. who in chapter two you're led to just despise. Right. And then in chapter three you're led to sympathize with her and love her. Once again, that right. reversal. And that leads to another theme that I think might pervade all of Hosini's works. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm tempted to go back and read all of his books, all three of them, mm-hmm. and see if this theme holds up. And I'm going to blame you a little bit for, for some of this thought that I had for exposing me to this perspective in Harold Bloom on Shakespeare. Uh-huh. That Shakespeare kind of invented the character arc, so to speak. Yes. That characters right. change. And I think the opposite is true in Hosini's works. Interesting. That characters do not change. They simply, the the perspective on them changes. Okay. Now we should stop and sort of uh, explain this more. I don't yeah. know if we've, have we done Bloom ever in, in previous podcasts? I don't know if we have. I don't know that we have. We may have referenced it offhand. Maybe. Okay. So what Michael is talking about is a brilliant book by Harold Bloom. Like the next time that you want a really good 900-page work of literary criticism, which, like, everybody wants to read on the beach, right? Light summer like, reading. We, we can't be the only ones who just go to beaches with... We're not uh, alone. Harold Bloom books. Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh. You implying that there are aliens doing literary criticism? Is that what you're I, saying here? Um, why wouldn't they? That's true. That's a good point. Aliens, get with it. Uh, okay. So <laughs> aliens are the only ones listening to this podcast. <laughs> oh, I hate how true that is. Um, no, we have at least one. Remember? Uh, yes. Yeah. So okay. At least until we mispronounced his name like seven different ways last yeah, time, I know. That was, lost him too. That was unfortunate. Him or her. Um, or her. Yeah. Anyway, that's the problem with internet names is you never have any. You never idea know what even like their original gendering was. Um, or Why don't if there you is any. Tell us when you write your five star review on iTunes. In that five star review on iTunes, tell us if you're a boy or a girl. No, don't do that. You don't have to do that at all. <laughs> That's the stupidest thing I've heard in a while. Um, I doubt it. <laughs> I said a while. That's that's ambiguous. That, that is ambiguous. Okay. That's pretty relative. So what we were originally saying, Harold right. Bloom, 
uh, wrote a book called Shakespeare, the Invention of the Human. Mm -hmm. And in that book, uh, Bloom posits that Shakespeare essentially, as Michael just said, invented the character arc. Um, that plays before Shakespeare and even sort of contemporary to Shakespeare tended to sort of rely on static characters. Mm -hmm. um, well, they, they were the same at the beginning as they were at the end. The idea is you take ingredients, you put them in a pot, you set the, bot, the pot to a certain temperature and watch what happens. Exactly. So like the classic example is like Oedipus Rex. Mm -hmm. um, Oedipus is the same character at the end of the play as he was at the beginning. He's just had several of his characteristics tested and sort of failed, essentially. Yeah. So that's that's uh, sort of what we're talking about here is, is Shakespeare, again, according to Bloom's thesis, is the first writer to take, uh, oh, what's, a, what's even a good example? Um, you know, even Romeo, for example. Yeah, Romeo, sure. Uh, Romeo, at the beginning of, of Romeo and Juliet, is sort of a lovelorn, almost like a playboy type, mm -hmm. um, I think would be fair to say. And by the end of the play, he's found the one woman that he's like willing to and he die is for. Exclusive and devoted, and yeah, like I, yeah, willing to die for her. Yeah. yeah. So. And even within that play, there are several. There's like Mercutio. Yeah. Has has a had a change. Even Benvolio. Benvolio. To you know, you could argue but, that Juliet. And does. that I think is really the genius behind this theory of. Harold Bloom, whether or not he's right about the character arc being invented by Shakespeare, I think what Shakespeare did is he took it not just with the main characters, but all of the sub-characters, yeah. the, yeah. the, the side characters. They all have a character arc. Right. Which that they, That's so many people to keep track of in your brain. Right. <laughs> um, oh, man, to open up that man's skull. Anyway, so let's point being, it. let's go find it and do it. <laughs> let's open his skull. Let's do it. Yeah, that doesn't sound like decades in prison at all. No. Um. Okay. So yeah. So Shakespeare did that, and so that's what Michael is referencing. And so you're almost saying that that Hosini here almost reverses that. It's almost yeah. a return, you could say, to like a classical, like a Greek view of character. Mm -hmm. Um. Which you know you could say. Uh, and I want to be very careful here because I don't know sort of Middle Eastern storytelling traditions enough to say this with any authority. But in oral cultures in general, I think characters tend to be much more stock, much more sort yeah. of commedia dell'arte, where it's the, the interest in the story is not the characters themselves changing. It's mm -hmm. sort of sort of they are who they are and here are some different perspectives right. or different... You like you said, you put them in a pressure cooker and you see what comes out mm -hmm. when they're well, this and not to not to be pressure. too reductionist about it, but just compare the a thousand and one Arabian Nights. Yeah, that you know they're they're fables that that are coming out here with stock characters and they go in and things happen and then they come out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I mean, there's there's that tradition there and that probably has some informing into this book. Yeah, again, work. one would think we 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 aren't gonna. No, we're not gonna go say, too exclusively. Say it too authoritatively. No. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's 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 a, a perspective that I I got out of this book that characters simply do not change, but the perspective on them does. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that perspective is tying into the theme of memory, and we might have to wait to talk about memory until our next episode. Yes. Um, uh, but uh, the idea that even the reader's memory of a character will change mm -hmm. 
based on this new perspective on a character. Mm -hmm. And so the character seems to have gone through an arc, but the arc is in the reader. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. And that almost uh, makes what Hosini is doing here more almost Joycean. Um, sure. Criticism I've read about Joyce's uh, first first book, Dubliners, which is, is in fact, a collection of short stories. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, now that I say this out loud, there's a lot of connections you could make. Um, Ooh. You know, Dubliners. This sounds like a doctor, doctoral thesis. Right. <laughs> Clearly, I should just be a doctor after I say what I'm about to say. But Do it. Thanks. <laughs> I, I will. I'll go ahead and do that. Anyway, um... <laughs> Dubliners, uh, you know, it takes place all in in a city, um, in the same city, in roughly the same time. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. It's been so long since I read it. I don't remember if characters cross over, but they certainly could. They certainly all inhabit sort of the same milieu. But what Dubliners does is that it takes a story arc or a... I remember reading criticism on Dubliners when I was in high school. Because, yes, that is what I did in high school... I never had a girlfriend until my sophomore year of college. This will surprise everybody based on what I just said. Nerd. Okay. So <laughs> I was pretty happy though. Before the girlfriend on it. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop, stop. this sentence right now. Yep. Anyway. <laughs> um uh so in Dubliners, right, what characters do is uh they each each story in Dubliners ends in an epiphany of, of some kind. Right? There's your there's your Good plosive there, epiphany. Thank you um, for testing the limits of the microphone yeah, and recording yeah. software. I hope when you put your headphones on to edit this that that just like blows your eardrums out. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay, so so each each story in Dubliners ends in an epiphany, but until the very last story, which is the most famous one in the collection, the story The Dead, um, all the other stories, the epiphany is supposed to be in the mind of the reader. Mm. Um, the characters don't see their own epiphany. Which is a little ironic. Right. Which is another theme of this book. What? What? No. But maybe no. we should wait to talk about that until our we next episode. We definitely should. I may have should have waited to say the last thing. No, that's okay. That's a good. That's a good little cliffhanger tease for yeah. our listeners. Yeah. Um. And in the next episode, I will also tie and the mountains echoed in with the book that we discussed last month. Last I was going to do that you, too! You but, jerk! I'll fight you I for it. I hate you! All right. No! All right. We got to we got to end this. Yep. I want the re the listener to know, the gentle listener should know that not only will Michael and I be drinking for the next 2 weeks, but we will be fighting. Yep. We will be fighting to see who gets to tie this book into last month's book. Because Lost in the Cosmos, there the can... last self-help book by Walker Percy. Thank you. There can only be one. There can only be one. All right. Uh, to close this episode, can I make a review? Absolutely. I'm going to review this chocolate. Ratings. Okay. <laughs> so to introduce this, this is a piece of chocolate that I gave er Michael earlier. Would you like and a in piece? Full disclosure, I would. Full disclosure, this chocolate is from Shulin's Chocolate House, uh, which you can find online, though you'll never be able to spell it. If you can figure out how to spell it, you'll find it online. It's S-J-O-L-I-N-D-S. Uh, Shulin's. Obviously. Full disclosure, this is where I work. So, so now is... you can stalk Ethan. Yes. And also, like, this is not exactly objective, probably. No. But 
I, I had had this particular bit of chocolate forever, and it came up before we were recording this podcast that I had been meaning to eat it. Um, my lovely wife sassily provoked us into putting it onto the podcast. Yep. So this is their Porcini Salt and Smoke chocolate. So mm-hmm. Shulin's does specialty chocolates. They make a lot of their own chocolates, as well as carrying other people's sort of specialty chocolates. And we just did have the thought that that maybe sounded like sort of a perfect pairing with other elements of this podcast. Other elements that, yes. So I'm just to, you notice when you look at it, you see a little bit of the, the spices on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the coloration of the chocolate makes it look a little bit uh, like a, like a, on the darker side of a milk chocolate, mm-hmm. which you, you expect something a little bit softer. However, when it breaks, it's got a nice little pop to it, like mm-hmm. a, a, a hard crack, like a darker chocolate. Uh, you get a smell. It's very spicy. It's a smell very salty. Which, if it's if it's got salt in the name of it, you should expect that. Right. A little bit smoky. Um, then on the tongue, um, the meat really comes out. Mm. Very meaty. Mm-hmm. A lot well, of porcini smoke. is actually a spice. It is not. It has nothing. No, to do I know. With meat. Okay. Yeah, okay. it's it's a spice, but but it, it it adds a little bit of a a meaty, a meaty element, element okay. to it. Yeah. That, yeah, thank you. You're That's welcome. what I mean, uh, clarifying yeah, that. Yeah, but just sure. Then the smoke I really thought, comes up. I honestly thought it had to do with pork for the longest time <laughs> until Karen told me it didn't. Well, that's a very helpful wife you have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, on the finish, that's where the smoke really comes through. Mm. So this is mm. the sort of chocolate that is ideal because it has a clear beginning, middle, and end. Uh, it tells a story in the chocolate itself. So I'm going to give this chocolate... A five out of five. Excellent. I agree. Um, and it does pair very well when you drink other elements of this podcast. <laughs> I will just say that. Um, also, ironically, clear beginning, middle, and end. Unlike And the Mountain's Echo. What? Boom. More on that in two weeks. All right. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, we're going to try to like wrap this ending up very quickly because yep. we're massively over time, as per frickin' usual. Per frickin' usual. Follow us on Twitter, at Room with Scotch, and our network at Tapestry Radio. Uh, similarly, find us on Facebook, Tapestry Radio Network on Facebook. Uh, join the Tapestry Radio Tap House for the insider's look at things. Things Tapestry Radio related, including this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and other podcasts. And other podcasts that we do, such as Intermission, our drama podcast, which one day will have new episodes, probably. It's coming. It's um, coming. They're in the works. Roll to Amble, our uh, D&D... Fifth was, edition. Fifth edition real, real play, play podcast. podcast. And... Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United real play podcast. Yes. Find the webcomic that I script, Pin Porter Girl Detective, with uh, brilliant artwork by mm-hmm. um, my my artistic partner, Robin G. Um, just really good art on mm-hmm. that. Like, she makes my, my script look like it's actually a legitimate script and not something makes it I look do. like a real thing. Um, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, follow my uh, my blog. I do a blog, Peculiar Taste. I don't know if I've uh, plugged that on I don't this think podcast you have. before. I don't but, think you have, uh, but it's a good blog. It's worth reading. PeculiarTaste.wordpress.com. One of these days I might just spring for the whole PeculiarTaste.com. But I review stuff. Like all the stuff, all the stuff, basically all the anything. Stuff. If you like what I just did with the chocolate there, you might like that pod, that uh, that blog. Yeah, yeah. So you're like becoming a real review pro. I love it. It's I good. love it. You know, I'm totally an amateur. No, I, well, 
I would call you a semi-pro and me an semi-pro. amateur. Semi-pro. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that. Sure. Even though these these gradations are completely arbitrary. Arbitrary. But that's what a pro reviewer would do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, good. Make so, arbitrary lines to cross. Yeah, or yeah. not cross. Or, or not. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Do you want to plug our personal Twitters? Uh, yeah. Mine is at Yartlet. B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. And mine is at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Very good. And Michael, I will see you in two weeks. Two weeks. During which we will drink and fight. Drink and fight. To the death. Oh, wait, really? Yep. Okay. Get ready for this. Okay, here we go. Tautological. <laughs> so is your face. My face is my face. Is a tautology. Is a tautology. Is it? Tautology is a tautology. Is well, a tautology. I, I hate you a lot. <laughs> I hate you very much a lot. I know. I hardly deserve it. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener, obviated objects of oblivion obambulating about, offered unto you in the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org, from our fancy to yours. Thank you.